the average American could hit about 92. Mm -hmm. Women may be able to hit 94. And that is the value proposition. In, uh, in blue zones, people are coming close to that. They're living a long time. They're, they're about a decade younger biologically at every major age milepost. That's Dan Butner. Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody, I'm Rich Roll. Glad to be back with you for a second time this week. The simple, beautiful, and powerful mission continues. And that mission is to help you live and be better, to become who you really are. And to do this, each week I sit down with some of the best and the brightest, the most forward-thinking, paradigm-busting minds across all categories of life, health, and excellence to serve and assist you and me in discovering, uncovering, unlocking, and unleashing our best, most authentic selves. Thank you for subscribing to the show on iTunes. Thank you for spreading the word to your friends and your colleagues and your family members and your coworkers. Thank you for subscribing to my newsletter, and thank you for clicking through the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So somewhere along the way, you might have heard of something called the Blue Zones. Well, that term was coined by my friend Dan Butner, and it's a catch-all term in reference to certain distinct areas of the world that Dan discovered during his myriad world travels that are, for the most part, with one exception, isolated from our fast-paced developing world. Slivers on the planet that boast the highest per capita populations of centenarians, people who live to 100 and beyond, places where people seem to live the longest, and also places where, by pretty much all accounts, people also seem to be the happiest. Dan is truly a Renaissance man. He's a National Geographic fellow. He's a world adventurer. He's a longevity expert. He's a New York Times bestselling author. You name it, this guy has done it. He's appeared on Oprah twice. He's keynoted speeches for Bill Clinton's Health Matters Initiative, Google's Zeitgeist, TedMed, and his TED Talk, How to Live to Be 100 Plus, has been viewed over 2 million times. Not enough? You want to know what? He also has three world records in endurance cycling. Are you kidding me? This guy has ridden his bike from Alaska to Argentina. He's biked almost 13,000 miles across the Soviet Union, and he biked almost 12,000 miles through Africa, including crossing the Sahara Desert, surviving by, uh, according to his account, on little else but water and dates. It's extraordinary. So basically, what am I saying? I'm saying this guy's my hero, straight up. You might have caught Dan on CNN a few weeks ago. He appeared on a show called The Wonderlist with Bill Weir in an episode called The Island Where People Forgot to Die. And Bill and Dan traveled together to the Blue Zone island of Ikaria, which is in the Mediterranean off the coast of Turkey. And they went there to film and learn more about why so many people in this hidden corner of the world live so long and so well. It was a really cool glimpse into what this Blue Zones ethos is all about. Uh, I don't know if it's online. I'll see if it is. If it is, I'll put it in the show notes for you guys to check out. Anyway, Dan's got a new book out this week. It's called The Blue Zone Solution. I highly recommend all of you check it out. And today we sit down to talk about that. 
but we talk about a lot of stuff. It's a, a truly extraordinary conversation. It's such a gift to spend time with this guy that I respect and admire so much, and we span everything. We talk about his crazy endurance feats. We talk about the importance of investing in adventure. We talk about what exactly he discovered when researching the longest living, happiest cultures in the world, and what this means for you, how we can all make basic behavioral, social, and environmental changes that can help all of us live longer and get the absolute most out of our years. So in other words, this is a talk about what it truly means to not only live longer, but to truly live well. Something I think we can all not only aspire to, but embrace. Dan's a great guy. This is a great conversation. It's coming up in a couple few, but first. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentous.com richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. 
To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. All right, let's enter the blue zone with Dan Buettner. I think it's good that, uh, that we made the executive decision to do this today as opposed to yesterday. What I was brain dead yesterday. Well, we, just, we, were, we were together all day, and, uh, and we were talking all day. So then to like kind of sit down and then, and then continue to talk, like I just, I don't know. I think we would have, we might have run out of steam. Moreover, I tried to keep up with you for eight no. miles. So <laughs> when I finished, there were literally no more consonants in my sentences. It was all vowels. Right. Well, we're here today. It's all good. And uh, I'm super excited to be talking to you. I know there's a lot of people that, that, are, that are excited about it too and really interested in your advocacy and your message. And just, to, just on a personal note, like expeditionist, adventurer, explorer, ultra athlete, wellness warrior, I mean, Dude, you're like my hero, you know? Like, how can I be <laughs> more like you? Well, like, will you be my mentor? I think, I think it's a mutual love fest here, Rich. <laughs> uh, I, I love what you do. I love your message. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm honored to spend the time with you. So thank you for, for, uh, for sitting down with me. And I think, um, you know, I'd like to just kick it off for people that are, you know, the four people out of everybody that are uninitiated as to what, the blue zones are, what's behind the blue zones. Can you just sort of bring us up to speed? Like, what is a blue zone? You know, what are we talking about here? And then we can kind of get into the origin story. So a blue zone is a part of the world where 
people live the longest. They're demographically confirmed, geographically defined areas where either people are reaching age 100 at extraordinary rates, they have the highest life expectancy, or they have the lowest rate of middle age mortality. In other words, they have the best chances of Mm -hmm. kind of reaching the global average of how long humans can live, which is about 92. And it began as a National Geographic uh, magazine assignment. And um, it was funded by the National Institutes on Aging. It took us three years just to find these five areas where people are living a long time and confirm them. A lot of the places you've heard about before, Mm -hmm. Vilcabamba Valley of Ecuador, the um, Hunza Valley of Pakistan, uh, the Caucasus and the old Soviet Union, those have all been debunked. So we went in and did the math and made sure we were finding long-lived areas. And then brought teams in to distill down exactly what they're doing that explains this longevity. Mm-hmm. And out of it came this uh, torrent of of content, of books and articles and mm-hmm. TV shows. And now let's say a program uh, in city, citywide programs in 20 American cities. That's amazing. So essentially it begins with identifying these geographical pockets, these five areas where people seem to not only uh, sort of defy the statistics in terms of longevity, but also are living more fulfilling, happier lives, right? Like I feel like there's a lot of emphasis on the centenarians and how long they're living, but I think the key kind of thing here also is quality of life. People are a little drawn to three digits in their age. And it's 100-year-olds do an extraordinary thing that tends to capture people's imagination. But the average American, if you got rid of all chronic disease, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, these are all avoidable diseases largely, the average American could hit about 92. Mm -hmm. Women may be able to hit 94. And that is the value proposition. In, uh, In blue zones, people are coming close to that. They're living a long time. They're they're about a decade younger biologically at every major age milepost, suffer about a sixth the rate of heart disease, about a fifth the rate of certain cancers. Uh, One of our blue zones, there's about a tenth the rate of dementia that we have here in America. Mm. And they achieve this not by the way we think about health. They don't diet, they don't have exercise programs, but they live in places where the culture makes the right decisions for them. And it turns out that there is this whole network of factors that come together uh, that help them live along. And to your point, Rich, it's it's not just about the discipline of staying on a diet or an exercise regimen. It's about a lot of the things that also derive a happy life, not only a mm-hmm. long life. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about these hill regions of Sardinia, right? <clears throat> We're talking about uh, an area of Costa Rica. Nicoya oh, Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Loma Linda, California, ironically, which we'll get into. And where are the other regions? There's a place, a uh, Greek island off the coast of Turkey called Ikaria. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the, the longest lived women in the world live in Okinawa, Okinawa. Japan. Mm-hmm. So there are five of them. Right. And, and what are the sort of unifying factors? Because one of the things is, uh, you know, you would think, well, these are, these are cultures that are somewhat removed from the gestalt of, you know, kind of Western progress, I suppose, um, and have maintained a certain lifestyle <clears throat> over generations. 
But what is it that kind of ties them together to create themes that you can extrapolate lifestyle principles out of? So we, we've discovered nine common denominators. Uh, first one is they live in environments where just about every trip occasions a walk. Um, they, their houses are deconvenienced. They tend to have gardens. Uh, they have vocabulary for purpose. Deconvenienced meaning what specifically? There's not a button to push for yard work and another button to push for housework and another mm-hmm. button to push for kitchen work. They're um, get, getting in there with their own hands and doing the work, kneading the bread, grinding the corn. Um, they're going out back to, to their gardens to get food. They're, they have yards, but they're doing yard work by hand often. So, mm-hmm. you know, we... We're kind of deluded in this country to think that we can sit in our offices all day long and then go to the gym for a half hour or do a half hour run at the end of the day and get the exercise we need. When you look at the cultures of longevity around the world, these people are nudged into physical activity about once every 15 or 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So their metabolisms are kick-started. If you sit for more than about 90 minutes, actually it's about 75 minutes without moving, your metabolism drops into a hibernative state. Whatever you have for breakfast very quickly goes to your midsection. So we should keep this podcast under 75 minutes. Or we can stand up halfway. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. <laughs> but as you know, I'm part Italian, so you'll see uh, my hands moving all. Through. So this is... this is Your metabolism is yeah. always going. This is a, yes, it's, it's an exercise. Uh-huh. Um, so essentially, the circumstances of their, of their environment dictate uh, a more active approach to their life. So it's not about going out and you know, pushing it or going running or, you know, the things that we kind of entertain ourselves with, but it's really just, it's really just a, a defining aspect of how they live their life every day. They're kind of always on the move. Yes. Gentle, low mm-hmm. intensity, physical activity. Uh, their lives tend to be imbued with purpose. They live in places where there's actually vocabulary for it. Uh, there's a time to downshift every day, which is really important. Most of Almost every age-related disease finds its root in inflammation, mm-hmm. in chronic inflammation. Um, chronic inflammation wrinkles your skin, it, it uh, atrophies your brain, uh, it wreaks havoc on your arteries. Uh, these people suffer the same stresses that we do. They worry about their kids, they worry about their health, they worry about their, their, uh, their money. But they have, either through meditation or through prayer, or through happy hour, sometime mm-hmm. during the day where they're reversing it all. They're taking that moment. Again, these are culturally provided. They eat a plant-based diet. I want to talk more about that later. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's plant slant. About 95% of what they eat come from plants. They do eat some meat, mm-hmm. uh, which I know is an inconvenient message to some people. But um, um, we did a worldwide global average, and, and there's some meat in their diet, but not a lot, a lot less than we probably think. They keep their aging parents nearby, invest in their families. Uh, they tend to have a belong to a faith-based community, which is not to say they're spiritual or necessarily holier than thou, mm-hmm. but they have this network of friends that often are imbued with some sort of a um, spiritual faith. And then they finally, they, they tend to be either be born into or choose, curate, so to speak, a social network that helps them 
practice these healthier behaviors without really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I love this idea of purpose. There is that term. Is it the Okinawans that have the the, the word that kind of defines ikigai? Ikigai which kind yeah, of sounds yeah. like that creepy guy at the end of the bar, but right. it actually means the reason for which I wake up in the morning. And this is culturally like a, a mandate for them, right? Like everybody sort of knows what their ikigai is if you were to pull people. Yeah, traditionally, when you're about five years old, your parents will match you up with a half a dozen other five-year-olds and there'll be a ceremony and then there's kind of cultural pressure that you travel through lives with those people. And they're there to, uh, if you run out of money or there's a death in the family or a kid gets sick or you get divorced... You have this social safety net mm-hmm. that you can count on. Um, but likewise, you got to step up to the plate when, you know, somebody else in that moai. And it's really powerful. Uh, actually, here in America, if you are lonely, if you meet the, the, the um, uh, definition of loneliness, which means you have fewer than three friends you can count on on a bad day, your life expectancy is about eight years less than it would be if you have a strong social network. That's amazing. You know, I think that I think that's a huge problem. I think we're getting uh, with the sort of advent of the internet. Ironically, we're getting lonelier and more <laughs> and more isolated as a culture. Fifteen years ago, the average American had three good friends. We're now down to about one point five. Mm. And incidentally, we have a we have this true happiness test that people take. It's sixty six questions, and it measures their happiness, but. Um, we don't capture people's specific or individual information, but we can we can get the aggregate. So we've had about uh, 280,000 people take it. So it's a big data set. And we can see very clearly that the more pe- time people are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. except, of course, for uh, Rich Roll. Uh, that, <laughs> yes. That, but, but they're... Uh, seeing what Blue Zones <laughs> is doing. They're actually um, less happy. They have, well, actually, social media, Twitter and Facebook, brings you a little bit more happiness if you're using it between zero and 45 minutes a day. But mm-hmm. after about 45 minutes a day, the curve makes a U-turn. Mm. And the least happy people we find, i.e. the loneliest, I would argue, <clears throat> are on uh, social media up to eight hours a day we were seeing. Eight hours a day. Well, I mean, is that? do you think that, that's be, that, that they're lonely because they're spending all that time there or they're spending all that time there because they're lonely. I mean, it's sort of a cart and horse thing. It is a cart and horse. But I think friends, authentic friends require effort. You know, we evolved face-to-face like you and I right now. There's a completely different dynamic we're having right now because we're six feet away from each other Mm -hmm. as opposed to if you called me up on the phone and we were talking on the phone. Um, we evolved as social creature and we're successful as a species because we collaborate. It feels good to collaborate. Feel It kind of puts our genes at rest. And um, it requires effort to, to uh, go see people, to be there when they're hurting, to lend a helping hand. And when you're just depending on social network, it's sort of the easy way out. It... It's too easy to not make that effort and build those authentic relationships. Mm-hmm. And there's where you get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea of kind of building community, having purpose, uh, you know, having a faith, 
all of these things kind of creating this web, this interdependent web of, of people that, and, and the relationship between that and happiness, I think is something that, you know, we've kind of, you know, in America, we're sort of moving away from, we're losing. And there's something really precious and, and beautiful about that. And there was something that you said that really struck me, which is, you know, I think it, it would be easy to say, well, these blue zone cultures, like they don't have the stress that we have, like they're not experiencing stress. They have a, they have a mellow life. Like they don't get worked up about stuff, but for you to say like, they do have stress, you know, they are worried about the same things, but these other environmental factors that are built into their daily existence, um, seem to, you know, buffer the negative impact of that. Yeah. We tend to take a pharmaceutical approach to, to health. It's, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, uh, rely on this diet, rely on this exercise program, rely on these supplements to stay healthy. And we tend to think that they're the panacea. I mean, Mm -hmm. when you look at you Google health, uh, you're going to see books on diet and exercise programs. And we really spent 10 years, and I had a great team at National Geographic, and it's very clear that purpose, being able to articulate your sense of purpose, it's associated with about eight extra years of life expectancy and about halving of your mortality, and it cuts your chances of a dementia in half if you can articulate your sense of purpose. So who thinks about health in terms of purpose? Uh, social network. We know if your three best friends are obese, there's a 150% better chance that you'll be overweight. Mm-hmm. The company that you keep. Yes. Loneliness is contagious. Unhappiness is con- contagious. Um, whether you smoke, how much you drink. Um, to Being aware that your social network is going to drive your health much more than some kind of um, activity regimen. And that's what we really tried to distill out of out of this, uh, out of these cultures of longevity around the world, right? And and these cultures are not um, they're not uh, uniform in the sense that when you look at one one specific you know cross it, whether it's a, it, specifically, I guess what I'm talking about is the Seventh Day Adventist, where you have all different kinds of um, ethnicities that are that that are that comprise this culture, right? So it, it's really more about the environment and the social culture created than it is about the genetic, you know, sort of framework right. of this particular culture. So something called the Danish twin study established that only about 20% of how long you live is dictated by your genes. Um, the other 80% is dictated by lifestyle and environment. Mm-hmm. So all except one of these blue zones, uh, it's a heterogeneous population. In other words, it's a melting pot of people. They're, they're, they have no... They don't have genes any more special than the genes you and I have. So you can eliminate genes. If you're looking for an answer to why they're living so long, you can eliminate the genes variable of the equation. Mm -hmm. So we focus that. Then we can just focus on, well, what's their lifestyle and what's their environment? And we tried to look at commonalities. We relied partially on, in some cases, there's been centenarian studies going on, which we've been able to leverage. In two cases, we had to create our own centenarian study, Icaria and Costa Rica. Um, but it's remarkable. You see the same nine things happening over and over and over again in completely disparate cultures around the world where people are living a long time. And about th- these places also uh, are achieving happiness. They're, they're landing in the top 
20% of the happiest places in the world as well. Mm-hmm. So happiness and longevity travel hand in hand. What do, you, what do you think people most misunderstand when the conversation turns to longevity or happiness? People think about uh, living a long time and it's something they don't want to really ponder. Mm-hmm. People don't like pondering their age or their frailty. I think especially younger people say, well, I don't want to live to 100 anyway. I want to, be, I want to die before I get old. Uh, but I interviewed about uh, 350 centenarians, and I'll guarantee you that every one of them wanted to live another year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <clears throat> I think in, when it comes to, to um, happiness and to a certain extent for, um, longevity, there's no short-term fix. We tend to want to do one thing, and it's going to change it. In all cases... Um, achieving both longevity and happiness. And, you know, I wrote this book for National Geographic on happiness called Thrive and came up with similar conclusions. Uh, There's no one quick thing you can do today, but what you can do in each case is stack the deck in your favor for greater longevity or greater happiness by making changes to your surroundings. Mm -hmm. That is the key organizing tenet. Well, what I really appreciate about the way you speak to these issues is the fact that you're acknowledging that there is no quick fix and that you're refusing to take uh, this reductionist approach to how we tackle this problem. And we were talking, we were joking about this the other day. I said to you, uh, you know, you talk about how these Sardinians drink this wine that's very potent, it's very high in antioxidants, and it would have been the American way for you to come back and <laughs> bottle this potion and say, I have found the elixir of youth, and I'd this be is it. Right now. And you, yeah, <laughs> you know, and no one would have batted an eye, and that's kind of the, the way the world works, right? And you said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm acknowledging that they drink this wine, but this is not inherent of it in and of itself, the solution to this problem. This problem is tricky, it's complicated. It's an interdependency of these nine things that we've distilled out and identified. And the way we can talk about this and approach it and try to find real, tangible, sustainable solutions to our healthcare crisis and uh, the way that we talk about longevity is to really analyze what's going on here and see if together we can find an approach that would work. Right? And, And so... Now you're taking this and you have created a model, which I think is really interesting in, in the way that you're approaching kind of cities to tackle this problem on like a kind of a local government level. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in urban centers? Sure. So when, when Blue Zones came out in 2008, I got booked on all these great TV shows, Oprah among them, and you could just see that people were resonating with the message, but I could also see that in the green room, there was another health expert who was going to be on right behind me. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they had another prescriptive that would probably be equally as. <laughs> on to the next. <clears throat> Very good, Dan. Very good. <laughs> so you, I have a great relationship with the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, specifically this uh, Dr. Bob Kane who was uh, dean of the school. He actually was dean at Stanford for a while mm. and went on to um, run the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. 
he's been a great connector for me and convened this group of experts. And I essentially asked them, uh, what can I do to make, to make this stick? And, um, they showed me all this research showing that diets only last three to seven months on average. Exercise programs last no more than two years. And it became very clear that no matter how good your message is, it's going to, it's going to go away. So inspired by this um, project in North Karelia, Finland, which brought down cardiovascular mm. disease by about 80%. It's amazing. Um, what, how, what was that about? 1972, North Karelia, Finland had, had the highest rate of cardiovascular disease in the world. And this um, researcher by the name of Pekka Pushka, a young idealistic physician slash uh, epidemiologist, came in and took it over. And he tried doing the same things that, that other preventative health um, programs have tried to do, which is try to hound people into changing their diet and exercise program. And saw very quickly it failed. So what he actually tried to do was um, change the system. Uh, the Finns were were uh, frying everything in butter. And even back in the 70s, we knew that there was a strong correlation between animal fat, animal protein, and cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease. And he knew he had to get he had to get um, vegetable oils into the diet. And he started with olive oil and promoting that, but that was too expensive to import from Finland. So he worked with some um, food engineers to create canola oil that would grow that far north. And he created a distribution system so that canola oil would you could buy it in grocery stores. Uh, he knew he had to get more fruits and vegetables into the diet, but um, importing oranges and lemons from Italy and Spain was too expensive, but they all had berries mm-hmm. uh, only during the month of October, the, the month that thawed long enough. Um, and he helped create a cooperative to pick the berries, freeze the freeze berries, them. and then uh, get them distributed th- in, through grocery stores all year long. Mm. The, the great story, the, the people love this sausage, this Finnish sausage, fatty mm-hmm. uh, salty sausage and he went to the um he wasn't going to convince these fins to stop eating sausages they've been eating forever but he went to the sausage maker and he said i convinced them that this program was having a big enough head of speed and would he consider gradually lowering the salt and fat content and replacing some of that fat with mushrooms actually mm. and he did it very slowly over six months mm-hmm. and his sales actually went up slightly so he was happy mm-hmm. But this whole region is eating the same amount of sausage without realizing it had 30% less fat wow. and 20% less sodium. Uh-huh. So that's the approach. That's the idea. That, uh, so the idea, the idea behind it really is you're changing these environmental factors uh, and making better choices super convenient to make. So you're, you're taking a, the thinking out of it. Really. That's right. So the key tenant in blue zones... In none of these places did people try to live to 100. None of these spry centenarians who were still standing on their heads or climbing trees at 101 said at age 50, well, I'm going to get on a longevity diet and live another 15 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it ensued. It was, it was a pro- they are a product of their environment. It was residue from a good environment. So that's the key organizing principle, that you can't try to change the behavior, you can change the environment. 
Our co-director on these Blue Zone projects is, runs the Cornell Food Lab. His name is Brian Wansing. And he will tell you that we make about 250 food decisions a day. Only about 50 of them are conscious. Mm -hmm. So I could spend a billion dollars to try to get Americans to make better food conscious food decisions. And I could affect only 50 of them. The other 200, I don't even touch. Our project uh, takes aim at those 200 food decisions you're making unconsciously and making them slightly better, all of those 200. So give me an example of one of those decisions that we make unconsciously. Well, the, uh, the, the, the sausage example I just gave mm-hmm. you, you're, I, I could try to hound you not to eat the sausage, but if I engineer the, the salt and, and sugar out. Um, in schools, we're in 20 cities now, so if you want to be a Blue Zone, if you want to be Blue Zone certified in one of our cities, we, uh, one of the policies is no eating in classrooms and hallways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're in an elementary school where there's no eating in classroom and hallways, classrooms and hallways, the BMI of that school is about 11% lower. In other words, the kids are 11% less fat than in a school where you can eat in hallways and classroom. Mm-hmm. Because if they're eating in hallway and classrooms, guess what they're eating? Chips, whatever the vending machine has. Exactly. Or, you know, Soda yeah, yeah. pops, candy bars. So we just changed that one little unconscious default <clears throat> And we cut out eight hours of junk food eating in a, in a kid's day, which has a bigger impact on their school than their school lunch would have. Mm-hmm. So how does it all work? I mean, you go to you go to like the mayor of a of a of a city and say we or they approach you and say we need we're trying to get our people to eat our constituents to eat more healthy or whether it's a university. I mean, how does it? What are the logistics of how it comes together? There needs to be two. Parts first, you have to have a city that wants to change, um, and the leaders need to work well together. So, if it's, we've had about 180 cities come to us and say, "Please make us a blue zone city," mm-hmm. um, we've shown that we can lower um, BMI at the population level by anywhere from 15 to 20 percent. We've lowered smoking. That's huge. It is huge. In the beach cities right here, there are 1,900 fewer obese people because of our projects. Um, we lowered uh, smoking rate by almost 30% in at least four of our cities already, which mm. makes... So this the word's sort of gotten out. They've come to us. But in order to make it work, the mayor, the city manager, key people on the Chamber of Commerce and city council, the head of super, the superintendent of schools, um, the CEOs of the big companies, the head of public health, they all have to be on board. They all have to say, we were interested in... Um, healthier community, and we understand that you're coming in trying to change mm-hmm. environmental defaults, i.e. policies and the experience in the places we spend our day, grocery stores. And then once um, once we're convinced that they're ready, then we have to have, find a funding source to pay for it. Right, because it's not going to work if there's, you know, political, you know, backlash or they don't want you there or, you know, some CEO who's in charge of the company that controls the town is not interested. Yeah, we still have politics. And I will tell you, we're working in Fort Worth, Texas with Healthways and Texas Health Resources. Uh, we're working in Iowa with with uh, Wellmark. Mm-hmm. 
uh, the Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, and um, there are strong business interests there. Fort Worth has got the stockyards, beef, and you'll play yogurts big. Um, Iowa has been called the pork state. There are six pigs for every human in Iowa, uh, numerically. But yet, even these big business interests will play along, we found, if if you're not just targeting them and saying, okay, you're the bad guy, you're the thing we're going to focus all of our effort on. Mm-hmm. We we don't have a silver bullet approach. We have a silver buckshot approach. And if they can see enough will and they can see enough momentum in the other domains, our experience has been they'll play along. That's interesting because, you know, we were talking about Iowa earlier. I mean, for you to go into Iowa and that state being what it is to say, okay, are you guys ready for the plant slant? <laughs> you know, like, how's that going to go over? Like, you know, what happens when you announce that as one of your tenants? Well, it was the front page of the Des Moines Register. There was a, like a pork chop or a hamburger with that prohibited circle around it with the line slashed through it. And mm, they're just going to run you out of town. Yeah. And I thought so too. And I was called out on the carpet and had to talk to the, the um, uh, representatives of, of the poultry, pork, beef, and dairy industries. And um, Believe it or not, they understand that 70% of Iowans are overweight or obese. They, they're, they're very aware, and they're people like you and me. And um, they, you have to have a conversation with them. Uh, you don't come in with mandates. What we come in with is a, for lack of a better term, a menu with about 110 or 120 evidence-based uh, interventions you can do at the city level that will move a population to half a percent or one percent. And we tell them, you, you know, if this is too painful, if your economy is too dependent on that, this one thing, don't do it. Mm-hmm. But there are 99 other ones that we want you to consider. So the secret sauce is to not come in as a nanny state, but come in with options that they can pick to help 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 them facilitate the conversation between stakeholders at the city level. There's got to be serious upper strata city leaders, and then remind them that you're not here to waste their time, and you know I'm not there to waste my time. They have to pick something off of this menu. Mm-hmm. We usually try to get ten or uh, twenty things that we're going to work on at the policy level, and then we help them manage that those policies to fruition. Right. Very cool. I mean, and and they have to, I mean, they're coming to you. You're not pitching these cities on your, you know, bag of goods. Like they have, they're coming to you. They want it. So they already know kind of what they're in for, I would imagine. Right. So it's not like this is some big surprise that you're going to unpack these, this toolbox that they're not going to like. There's a selection bias. The the cities that come to us, they they that minute they tend to be they tend to have an appetite for innovation. They want to be um, thought leaders in their state or in the country in some cases, um, and they're sick and tired of their kids being overweight mm-hmm. or their their, their health care bill, and because there's a connection between the health care bill and what they pay in health care and productivity. Uh, often it's driven by economic desire too, but bottom line is, it's 
if you can solve the health, you solve a lot of economic problems too. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what are some of the top level things? Like if you were like, you know, global things that, that, that you look at, like for example, in the beach cities, you know, how are you reducing BMI? How is, you know, the rate of smoking going down? What are some of the things that are changing the changes that you implement? So when it comes to smoking on, on Hermosa beach, we went to a cluster of restaurants on Hermosa pier, and we asked them to become Blue Zone certified, which means they don't allow smoking on their premises. And they said, we'll do it. We're, we'll play along. And um, because a couple uh, restaurants said we want to do it, the rest were feeling left out. So the whole, whole pier went smoke-free, or most mm. pier. It's where a lot of people kind of come together and socialize. At yeah, night. there's a bunch yeah. of bars there and stuff. Yeah, and then neighboring Manhattan Beach, which is also part of the project, not to be outdone, they said, well, if Manhattan Pier can do it, our whole city's going to do it. Mm-hmm. So they <clears throat> prohibited smoking. And we know when you make denormalized smoking, the smoking rate goes down. But it required organizing both the leaders and the, um, the business people and also the, the grassroots. And um, uh, it took about a year. And we, we have Gallup measuring smoking went down. Uh, we got them... Los Angeles is uh, famously, uh, shall we say, a car-driven community. Um, the roads here have been built for cars. You, mm-hmm. This is such a beautiful, Los Angeles, such a beautiful place to to um, bike. It's relatively flat, a lot of it. It's warm. It hardly ever rains. But, yeah, nobody bikes because it, you're on the bottom of the transportation food chain and you'd end up getting... right. We convinced the beach cities to adopt a complete street policy or an active living. Now, every new street that goes in has to be assessed for a bike lane, a wider sidewalk, trees. Um, they started, so that applies to any new constructed street that's made. Right. Uh-huh. And you have to show people. Uh, we have a guy on our team named Dan Burden who is kind of the Mozart of the intersection, we call him. He's very good at helping he will take city leaders to certain intersections or certain streets that have been designed horribly just for cars. And it's very clear. It's congested, very clear to see it's, it's um, lethal for a pedestrian. He'll take them there. He'll show them what, what it looks like now. And then he'll, he'll have photographed it. And he does these photomorphs. And then he'll take the leaders and he'll show how this could change if you put a roundabout, if you widen the sidewalk, if you put trees, mm-hmm. if you put a a medium down the middle. And um, you can't ask people to make huge change, expensive changes like that unless they can visualize it. Mm-hmm. So you visualize it, you hold the conversation, you generate the political ground cover, and then you give them the menu to order off of so it becomes easy to start doing that. Right. And how many cities have you have you worked with on this? We're up to 20. Wow. And then we just signed on the... Um, whole state of Hawaii and we're starting with the statewide project in Oregon. So mm. it's got a nice head of steam. That's pretty cool. Statewide. Yeah. They're, they tend to be in, in Hawaii, it's HMSA, which is the blue cross blue shield plan. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's also the blue cross plan in regents in, in Oregon. And because of the affordable care act, there's been a shifting in the economics of healthcare away from just getting sick people less sick. And actually there's incentives now put in place to keep people healthier in the first place. Mm-hmm. And there are some, and we tend to work with visionary early adopter 
organizations who are trying to get ahead of the way the world is going when it comes to healthcare. And they brought us in because they're they're innovators, visionaries, but also because they often insure enough lives that they can invest money in keeping people healthy and <clears throat> reap the rewards 15 years down the road when diabetes doesn't happen when it would have otherwise. Right. right. You got to be in it for the long haul Correct. in order to like sort of substantiate that kind of investment. Yes and no. Um, there, the, as I said before, uh, part of it's healthcare, but also it's productivity. Now, mm-hmm. uh, if you, if you, uh, lower healthcare costs by about 10%, you tend to see an uptick in productivity by 15 to 20%. Mm. You also have less absenteeism. So if you're a big employer in a city, um, you begin reaping the benefits almost immediately. People have more energy. Uh, they're more present uh, mentally. Um, they, ten- they tend to be, you know, if they're, if they're factory workers, they tend to be harder workers if they feel good as opposed to struggling with diabetes or being too overweight. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years. And I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft, supportive and the craftsmanship is just next level i've got one in every room of my house i love it pretty sure you will too and right now birch is giving 20 percent off all mattresses and two free eco rest pillows at birchliving.com slash rich roll that's 20 percent off and two free eco rest pillows sleep better with birch we're brought to you today by seed gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. 
Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. You're living an amazing life. Like, is this what you thought you would be doing with yourself? Like when you were maybe, you know, even 10 years ago, like how do you, you know, we were talking earlier and you, you said you've approached your life in these kind of 10 year windows, right? Where you like every 10 years you go, all right, what's next? I reboot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Somebody you're, you're rebooting. And uh, it's kind of amazing to see what you're doing, knowing kind of a little bit about, your, you know, your arc and, and your, and your past. So I want to get into that a little bit. I want to go back to, you know, the young Dan, life is an adventurer, life is an explorer, you know, what motivated you to go on these expeditions and kind of how that all led to what you're doing now? I had a mentor in George Plimpton, who was a participatory journalist. I worked for him for a year and I come from Minnesota and he, he lived this big life. Very big life. Amazing guy. Yeah. What an amazing experience to work with. How did that, how did you swing that? I blundered into it. I knew another guy got hired, and George and I hit it off. I helped organize a celebrity croquet tournament for National mm -hmm. Public Radio when I was right out of college. And uh, George had, he was supposed to be a lawyer, but he went on to edit the Paris, Paris Review, Review and throw a pass in the NFL. He was kind of the Walter Mitty. The paper lion. That's right. Uh, box with Archie Moore. And uh, he's a guy who could think big. He visualized what he wanted to do, and he—I was very inspired. He kind of gave me the courage to do it and some of the tools. And uh, my version of participatory journalism was um, uh, bicycling. Um, in uh, 1986, 87, I—I I biked from Alaska to Argentina, Prudhoe Bay, the mm -hmm. Arctic Ocean, all the way to the southern tip. How long did that take you? Took uh, 305 days. Wow. 
That's not that long. No, no. How many miles a day were you doing? Well, if you average it out, it comes about 70. But in the reality, it's more like about 100 or 110 because there are big wars going on in Nicaragua and El Salvador, and we were stopped at borders, and Mm -hmm. we were stopped for battles, quite literally. There's a Darien Gap between Panama and Colombia, which you can't bike across. The driest desert on Earth is the Atacama. Mm -hmm. We were pedaling literally through blizzards in Patagonia because we finished our trip. We had to start in— When you say we— there are four of us. Four of you. There are always uh-huh. four on these expeditions. And um, we set a Guinness World Record, which I know sounds impressive, but it, it, was, it was all downhill. What was the record was for what? First, for, were you the first to make that track? Or? Yeah, first to make the entire. We literally, our rear wheels began in the Arctic Ocean and we finished in the Straits of Magellan. Uh-huh. Or actually south of Ushuaia. Amazing. Front wheels. And you were how old then? 26, I started. And what, 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 in, what inspired that? Well, I had a, I had a father who was, who was uh, taught us outdoor. He, when we were, instead of going to Disneyland, we were taking three-week canoe trips into the mm-hmm. wilderness and living off the land. And uh, like you, I was a runner and a swimmer. And, and then this inspiration from, from George, I just wanted to do something cool. <laughs> because George, because George was just this so larger than life character. He just made you believe that you could do something extraordinary. I remember the Celebrity Croquet Tournament attracted lots of millionaires, people with vast wealth and Rolex watches. I remember saying, and George would walk in the room, and George didn't have a lot of money, but he was wealthy with experience. And all the people gravitated to George. Mm -hmm. You know, and as a young guy, you kind of see, well, what, who do I want to be when I'm, you know, he was probably 65 at the time. Um, This wealth of experience I saw very clearly was much more valuable than, than wealth of dollars or it's inspiring. Yes. So again, he, he gave me that vision that, um, and once you have that vision, it's, it allows you to create a map to to go after that vision. Mm-hmm. He taught me that, um, you know, he had a certain flair. First of all, he's a writer. And if you can write about your experiences, you have your suitcase in your head and a way to make money. And, and I was uh, a writer. I was interested in material to write about. Were you also working for the Paris Review when you were working for him or just no, for George personally? Yeah, just for Well, George was the chairman of the Celebrity Croquet Tournament, and I only worked for him. In that capacity. Gotcha. And then um, he actually inspired me to write. And I, there was a, before the bike ride, I spent a year writing in Paris. And he was uh, kind of my de facto editor. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the Alaska to Argentina. But he taught me, you know, if you think big, it's a lot easier to get raise a million dollars than it is to raise $10,000, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Mm-hmm. When, when you're... Um, when you're approaching big companies to sponsor something, it's usually a vice president that um, makes the decision. And that vice president wants to be recognized. They, people gravitate to thinking big. So you know, before I'd biked Alaska Argentina, I thought, well, maybe, maybe a bike ride from Minnesota to Mexico would be cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> And then, no, you, you just kind of stretch. Yeah, so when you get to the superlative, you know, the complete length of the Americas and then having Guinness, 
um, endorse it, so to mm-hmm. speak, say it's a Guinness World Record. It's kind of a BS thing, but nevertheless, it was it makes people pay attention and and um, I think it's pretty. Cool. So you paint a big picture, and people get on board. We're able to get it sponsored. Mm-hmm. You know, we you know, there are four of us for a year, and we raised twelve thousand dollars. So that means we lived off of three thousand dollars per person for a right. whole year, which. Wow. We weren't living high in the hog, but right, uh, right. we got it done. We we finished. And in the wake of that experience, you come home, and and what's next? Well, you're permanently derailed from the straight and narrow. You don't. The rest, you're screwed yeah. for the rest of you. You're not going to go work <laughs> yeah. at, you know, Kellogg General or Mills. something. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're screwed, yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, did you call George and go, I did it, man? Yeah, in fact, um, I, I came back. I was on Letterman. Oh, you did! Wow. Yeah, and uh, you are like the Zelig character, man. There's a lot of layers here. I was staying at That's his pretty play. Cool. <laughs> yeah, and I, I told that to David Letterman, and, he, and his, of course, his quip was, "Does he know you're there?" Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, and I went on. I set a record for biking around the world. Um, through the former Soviet Union, 1990, mm-hmm. and then another record for biking from the uh, top of Africa to the bottom of Africa, which by a factor of about three was harder than making it across the Americas. Is that right? So, yeah, you have this, you, you called it America's Trek, Soviet Trek, Africa Trek. Yeah. The three, they're amazing. So the Soviet one was almost 1,300 miles, right? 13,000. I mean, one, that's what one I mean, 13,000. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the Africa one, 12,000 almost. Yeah, but, but um, Africa was a lot harder because you had to get across the Sahara Desert. Yeah. So there were days where you're lucky to log eight miles and you, you, you'd go 14 hours because mm-hmm. of deep sand or getting through the Congo. Um, Congo's about the, half the size of the continental United States, and there's about 150 miles of roads in the whole country. Mm. So most of the time you're on animal paths or you have to carry your bike through rivers. Or- yeah, this is crazy stuff. I and mean, we, we talked about this when we were hiking yesterday. You were telling stories of, of riding across the Sahara. I mean, you, you're, you packed in all your water, so you would have... Uh, what were you telling? Like uh, forty gallons, about forty, 40 liters. Forty liters. Okay, so forty liters. So that that would last you how many days? Two on general. Yeah. So three. It's not like you had a Land Rover following you nope. with all your stuff in it. Like it's just you on the bike and whatever you could carry. So what I didn't know, which was fascinating, was you telling me about these these barrels every five kilometers that kind of guide your way across the desert. Yes, in in theory, and these yeah. maps that would show you where these wells were, and everything revolved around getting to that well before you ran out of water. Yeah, the, crossing the Sahara is very serious business, and we did as much research as we could possibly do. The CIA, the CIA produces these uh, ONC charts; they're called operational navigational mm-hmm. charts, and they're about as big as a wall map, but they might only cover forty square miles. And we had thirteen of them. To help us get through, they they got down to the dune, and um, mm. um, and also they they denoted the wells. We had the first newly demilitarized um, GPSs. They're big clunky things, <laughs> and we had to wait about a half hour for it to get 
triangulate with three satellites. Right, so we're talking, like, this is 1996? No, no. Or 1990? 90, uh, 92, 93. 92, 93 for that one, right, okay, yeah. Yeah, and um, so you could you could chart your way. Um, we'd, we'd navigate from well to well. We'd fill up our, our we had a jerry can, and we have created a bladder in the triangle of the of the frame to carry 40 liters of water. And, of course, you'd want to oversupply in the case that the well was dry Mm -hmm. or was poisoned somehow, which occasionally happened. And um, then you, at a certain point, part part of the Sahara through Algeria is paved, actually. But then that uh, pavement unravels to just open desert with tracks Mm -hmm. that look like a plate of spaghetti. And that's when it gets really dicey. And for most of that, there are barrels at five-kilometer intervals. But sometimes the barrels are gone, or sometimes there's a windstorm that kick up the sand. You can't see twenty feet ahead of you, much less. Wow! Uh, so it's a, it's a, it was a risky something. I wouldn't do again. Yeah, I mean, it, and and you had mentioned like you, you're you're rolling up on these wells, like expecting to be able to refill, you know, your water tanks, and the wells dry or the wells poisoned. I mean, that had yeah. to be, those must have been perilous moments. Well, you have a pit in your stomach for the next, because if you get to the next one and that well is dry, then you're, really then screwed. you're screwed. You have about two days to survive in the Sahara if you run out of water. And then you you dehydrate, and dehydration is a horrible death. Your tongue swells up, and you can't swallow, and you get irritable, and you go mad. And um, there's no 911. There's no you can't get your out your iPhone and mm-hmm. you know Siri it or whatever. You're 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 done. There was one time we we lost the road, and for um, about 24 hours we didn't know where we were. And I'd read uh, these Bedouin accounts of how they get across the Sahara, and um, one of them had said that the the wisdom is if you don't know where you go, you sit down, mm. and it comes to you. Uh, that's your best bet is to mm. stay put. And, you know, we. I come from this sort of hardware, well, let's figure this out. And, right. Well, let's try over there and try over there, and that, that often just gets you lost worse. So the four of us sat down, and we found this kind of hill, this rock outcropping, and we walked... I don't know, a quarter of a mile to that, and we camped on that. All well, we climbed the, to the top, and we sat and we looked, and we watched the sun go down. And then we, uh, we, we, I was telling you yesterday, you can actually find these prehistoric roots in the Sahara. Mm-hmm. You can build a fire, and we build a fire. It gets really cold mm-hmm. at night, and then, um, and then the next morning we sat and we talked about death, and we talked about. You know, and I was the leader, and I kind of apologized to all of them, and I said, "Sorry, I got you guys into this." And it could have gone either way. Mm, wow! And uh, finally, my brother Steve uh, said, "I think it's this way." And we sat on the top of uh, this out this um, little mountain, this little hill, and we watched him. And he was supposed to turn around every hundred yards to make sure he could see us, and we had line of sight. Mm-hmm. And he went out in two forays, and the second foray, he saw a barrel. Mm. mile marker and waved his arms wow and- that's amazing so yeah the being able to 
to know where those barrels are. That was basically, those are, those are your lifelines, right? And it, yeah. it sounds to me like very similar to what it would feel like being adrift at sea or lost at sea. Yeah, or even at lost in your life in a little <clears throat> bit. I think mm-hmm. there's a useful metaphor to think about <laughs> knowing where that next barrel yes. there is and, and, and getting sitting, across. sitting down and not trying to will it into being one thing or the next, but just yeah. doing nothing for a moment. I mean, it was hard to get across the Sahara. You're exhausted all the time. You're thirsty all the time. You sweat, and then the sand kicks up, and you feel like a sugar donut. All the t- it's just, and then you under your arms, and they, they all everything gets sandblasted. So you're mm-hmm. just in pain and discomfort all the time. And if you think of the enormity of the Sahara, this is a area the size of the continental United States, and saying. Crap, shit, I'm going to try to bike across. Yeah. It's just overwhelming. But, you know, you could always get to the next barrel. And then we had a little ritual where you had to tell a joke when you got there. So mm. the four of us all took turns telling a joke. And somehow you could kind of get to the next barrel. Mm. I know it's probably a cliche, but uh, it worked for us. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Um, so, so you do these three incredible Guinness book of world record setting, you know, ultra endurance cycling events. And you spend, that's your 10 year window for that, right? Like you kind of spend 10 years pursuing that aspect of your life and then it becomes about something else. Like how do you transition into the next phase of what your life is going to be? So I had a very smart editor at national geographic named Peter Miller legendary expedition editor, and I'd been pitching geographic stories about these bike rides, and they never got in the magazine. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, it's a great accomplishment, but he said expeditions of the future really need to add to the body of knowledge or educate or somehow illuminate the human condition. It can't just be just because you made it. Right. And that got me thinking. And about the same time, this uh, notion of hyperfiction, which was developed at Harvard, a guy named Papper, this notion that you could follow a, um, a character through a story by uh, male and a female, and uh, you could decide if you wanted to follow the female by turning the page to 19 and then reading a little bit more, and then it would tell you, follow the female, go. Um, it was a precursor to HTML, uh, mm-hmm. to the web, more or less, then. And I took that as a metaphor to think of a new type of expedition that wouldn't necessarily be linear, but be HTML. Mm -hmm. And conceive this, um, we called them quests. And the idea was a team of experts with uh, laptop computers and a satellite dish connection to an online audience uh, would plop into a part of the world where there was a mystery to be solved. We started with the Maya, collapse of the Maya Mm -hmm. civilization in Central America. And then we actually let an online audience vote to direct us to decide where we go to gather mm-hmm. clues. And we let the online audience make sense of those clues, decipher them, and choose which ones were best. And then at the end, we'd try to solve the mystery. And uh, I ended up doing 14 quests around this idea, and they got huge. Um, mm-hmm. Back in the early days of the internet, we had a million and a half followers, most of them in schools. Wow. I mean, this is like pioneering days of the internet. This is early days. Right. Yes, and our good buddy. Uh, w- weird how world works, but our friend Ed McCall, uh-huh. uh, big venture or private equity guy, <clears throat> ended up buying the company, 
and uh, we eventually sold it, was it to called, our, It was called Quest, right? Quest Network. Quest yeah. Network, right, right, right. Yeah, it's a college friend of mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just saw it. My reunion is crazy, small world. Um, but that's so, yeah, it's cool. You had like um, school kids participating, like kind of going along virtually along with you throughout these journeys and helping you, helping kind of guide where you would go next. Is that accurate? Yeah. So if you watch kids use the internet, they don't sit around and read long form. So at the time, uh, uh, education publishing was trying to figure out how to take textbooks and put them online. And of course, putting textbooks online, nobody, Mm -hmm. they're not engaged. Most of our audience were middle school and high school kids. They like to do something. Right. Give them an experience they can invest in. Exactly. So instead of the great white explorer going to a faraway part of the world and reporting what he found... (laughs) Um, the idea here was that I had Harvard archaeologists and MIT biologists and National Geographic photographers and a real TV crew, and the kids could decide where that crew went. We, when whatever they voted for every day, we listened to. Mm-hmm. We went there, so we relinquished the power, put it in their hands. So it was an empowering metaphor for them. And then around this core activity of trying to solve an ancient mystery, we wrote curriculum, uh, essentially instructions to the teacher to show the teacher how to use that core activity to teach Mm -hmm. geography, social studies, language arts, science. And it, it was, um, it replaced textbooks in about Mm -hmm. 20,000 schools for three or four years when we were I mean, this is a big idea, you know, this is Plimpton-esque, right? Like, is this, this is another, this had to be inspired by this spark that he lit for you of thinking big, because that's not a small thing. I trace everything back to George, yeah. Yes. that's amazing. It was very successful. I did it for a decade, and... What did you learn about the Mayans? Well, they were the greatest civilization in the Americas until about ninth century they developed a system of writing they calculated the length of the solar year to within 17 seconds of the Mm -hmm. figure we come up with today they built 24-story temples but they collapsed catastrophically and they collapsed i argue for reasons very similar to the challenges that uh, we face in our world today they got very good at technology, mostly agricultural technology. They figured out how to feed 10 million mm-hmm. people in an area that only supports 200,000. Uh, but they deforested. They destroyed their environment. Uh, there was a small climatic change, uh, a drought that shouldn't have happened, which knocked it off kilter, and that got people revolting. Wars broke out all over the place when you pulled farmers out of the cornfield and put them in the battlefield. It exacerbated the problem. And, um, you know, we we use technology to build up all of our, our, um, our level of consumption, mm-hmm. whether it's cars or meat or, or uh, um, the size of our houses. But eventually you load up the carrying capacity of the, land so much that it becomes a house of cards and it doesn't take much to collapse it and that's Mm -hmm. what the Maya did Mm -hmm. (coughs) sorry that's all right that's amazing is that a uh is that kind of a consensus opinion now or is that pieced together through the kind of archaeological work that you did when you were there so that represents a 
the collective um, wisdom of the crowd of our online audience. Mm -hmm. So the notion when we went into the my area of Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Southern Mexico, there were 13 or 14 archaeologists actively working down there. And uh, we, ahead of time, we knew what their work was, we knew what their theories were, but we let the online audience decide which of those that mm. we kind of collaborated with. And they actually downloaded their evidence, their research, their findings, and then we left it for the online audience to synthesize. So what I just told you was kind of the culmination this of is, a, This is early, the yeah. early days of crowdsourcing. It was, yes. You know? That's pretty cool. Wisdom of the crowd before Sir Wiki coined the phrase. <laughs> Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right. So when, how do we get into like longevity and wellness? Like where, where, when do you start to 
get hip to like these cultures that are doing something different? Like where does your antenna start to perk up and go, there's something here I want to explore? So these quests got big in America and then Japanese government came and said, would you do a quest in, in Japan? We'll, we'll pay you. And they waved an enormous mm-hmm. check and we said, sure. So I had a researcher who uh, we charged to find a mystery that would be compelling, a Japanese mystery. And we couldn't find anything there. We don't know much about the Japanese mm-hmm. culture. There was now great collapse or anything <clears throat> like that. Um, but we did notice, and this was in the year 2000, that the World Health Organization had found that in Okinawa, uh, people enjoyed the longest disability-free life expectancy in the world. In other words, they lived a long time without mm-hmm. getting sick and then died abruptly, which is what we want at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I knew enough about genes and lifestyle to know that there had to be something special going on there. So we did a kind of we did a quest, which is a fairly, you know, not a deep dive into it, but what you can find in two weeks by going there. We mm-hmm. let our online audience. And my our website just went nuts. And it wasn't just for kids. It was we were adults. We could see that there was a real interest in secrets of longevity. Mm-hmm. How, how are they doing it? And uh, Imagine that. People might be interested in knowing how they might be able to live longer. People are interested in health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dating back to Ponce de Leon. That's right. Before. The, the fountain of youth. Mm-hmm. Was there a fountain of youth in Okinawa? Um, but I got some, I went back to Geographic, who would, who would routinely probably turn me down 15 times. And I, you know, I was like a terrier on their pant leg. You are a study in persistence when it comes to them, because now as, well, first of all, what is a National Geographic fellow? Like, I know that's what you are, but I don't know what that means. If I wear my hat off to the yeah. side. No. <laughs> like, <laughs> No, it's well. I've been around that. See, I was fifteen years ago. So, uh-huh. um, they fund my research. I don't have to show up to an office. They, I represent National Geographic in lots of different speeches and mm-hmm. film festivals, and and um, with their stakeholders. And um, they tend to they publish all my books. Mm-hmm. They, I tend to get um, considered on any idea I have sort of in the club it's a lot easier to to get a proposal considered when you're a fellow than you are and what's it what's well but what's interesting and then you know i want to hear the rest of the story but but this is on the heels of you know you pestering them for year after year after year and them saying no 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 yeah to this day now where you're kind of like their guy i'm one of their guys yeah i think they'd say that all right, go ahead with the story. Yeah, gentle pressure <laughs> relentlessly applied. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I came in there with this s- s- story of um, longevity that mm-hmm. I, I said if there's a, if there's one in um, Okinawa, there must be others around the world, and I'd like to find them. And they said I love the idea, and it took about four months to develop a pitch to get mm-hmm. assignment from the magazine and uh, simultaneously I was working with the National Institute on Aging who gave me a grant to which I used to pay for demographers to find these places mm-hmm. it's expensive work um, to parse through all of the birth and death records in the world and that find. sounds like a horrible job well I have a uh, partner named Michel Poulon in Belgium 
who at the the University Catholique, who uh, that's his specialty. So I I found him and and hired him. We continue to work to this day. In fact, and his he lives for numbers, and um, he's you know for him good porn is a spreadsheet, mm-hmm. and uh, he um, he he did all the work on parsing the data, and then once we the data seemed to point to an area, then we would uh, travel there and we would confirm that people, the records are accurate, that the sent people who say are 100 years old are really 100 years old. That took three years. Mm-hmm. How many places did you go to that didn't bear fruit or didn't turn out to be what you thought? Just one, um, Vilcabamba, Valley mm-hmm. of Ecuador. We thought that that might have been, and it wasn't. People, there weren't birth certificates, and when there aren't birth certificates, people don't really know their age. They forget. Mm-hmm. They exaggerate later in life. You know, one year they're 80, and the next year they're 83, and pretty soon they're 90, and then the people around town, that ah, gets 100. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's usually what happens, by the way, when there's not. So yeah. we, had to, we had to ground through the, We're very sure about these places. So that, you know, building up credibility. I've been at this 10 years. So methodically building up the credibility then enables you to speak about the um, – Tenants, the the characteristics of these places, with some authority as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you you compile all this data, you visit all these places, and this is, you know, where, where where's the? I mean, was there an aha moment where you're like, this is a big idea, you know, like this is this idea kind of transcends, you know, maybe what I originally thought it was, or did it just gradually kind of come together? It it keeps surprising me. Yeah, I never thought I'd get a grant from the National Institute on Aging. The magazine I wrote a cover story for Geographic, and for I hope to just get in the. Remember, I've been working at it for fifteen years. So my first story, first article for them was a cover story. Was a cover story, and it was the third best-selling cover in their history. It was knocked out. That's crazy. And then, had you been writing? <laughs> had you been writing articles for other magazines and kind of doing a journalism thing all along for other publications? And Geographic just wasn't on board until then, or like was your writing finding its way <laughs> to other outlets along yes, the way? I wrote all the time. Mm-hmm. I wrote for Outside Chicago Tribune, Life mm-hmm. Magazine. I wrote for I right. wrote four or five books. Geographic's a very the Yellow Magazine. It's got the biggest population mm-hmm. in the country right now, and at the time in the world, probably still in the world. Is that right? It's kind of like a sleeping giant because you don't you don't really think of it like that. But I guess it I guess that makes sense. There's 3.8 million readers. Wow! And uh, you know, as Time Magazine gently goes out the back mm-hmm. door, National Geographic is still alive. It's still it's still thriving. Because I think I think that's because it it is. Uh, <clears throat> It's uh, it's it's like a each edition is like timeless. You know, it can sit on your coffee table. It doesn't it doesn't matter when it comes out. They exist as like museum pieces forever. They get the very best writers, the very best photographers. Mm. It, every article is at least nine months in development. Mm. They they're a, a whole floor full of individuals. Two floors, seventh mm-hmm. and eighth floor um, work for months and months for every article. So that's why they, 
they they play well and they they last a long time. Mm-hmm. So when this cover article comes out, I mean, does that change your life? Does that change kind of <coughs> the way you're pursuing your career? I mean, what happens? Well, I was they've generated a bunch of media, and I was I did Good Morning America and CNN and Oprah and Doctor well it was before Doctor Oz and. And uh, then a, a, a agent came to me and said, you should do a book. I did a book. It became mm-hmm. a New York Times bestseller pretty quickly. And I, I thought, well, I'd be done then. And then i go do something else. And then, I don't know, I just had this idea of seeing if I could apply to American population. And um, I got funding to do that. I did that for your – and actually, I didn't love doing it. Mm-hmm. I can do it. But I didn't love doing it. But it was a huge hit. It was cover of USA Today and mm-hmm. Good Morning America again and Nightline and U.S. News and World Report and Newsweek. And it worked. So then you you kind of become a little bit of a slave of your success. Yeah. So so are you, uh, are you at a point right <laughs> now where you're thinking, I'm at the beginning of another 10-year window? Or like where do you fall on your own timeline in terms of how you perceive you know, where you want to invest your energy going forward. Well, I've committed to building these blue zones. I have a partner, Healthways, mm-hmm. and I have now a... a, you have a you're running a huge company doing yeah, that. <laughs> so, and I have really good people who I'm, I'm planning to pass the baton to. Uh, I already know when. It's July mm-hmm. of next year. Um, I have about 14 more months where I'm going to stay at the helm and then, then reboot, as mm-hmm. it were. Mm-hmm. And what does that reboot look like? Do you know? You don't want to say yet? I'm 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 toying with a bunch of ideas. <laughs> it's time though. But in the meantime, you got uh, you have this book coming out, the Blue Zone Blue Zone Solution. <clears throat> it's coming out soon, right? That's exciting. And so, tell me a little bit about what's in this book versus you know your previous Blue Zone. I realize that for most Americans, whether we like it or not, their runway into health is through food. We mm-hmm. love to eat. We do it at least three times a day. And, um, I fought that for a long time because I don't necessarily believe food is the most important, but um, I know that's the runway for a lot of us. So I hired three researchers from the University of Minnesota, and we spent about three years to gather up all the dietary surveys and all five blue zones for the last hundred years mm-hmm. to find out the global average of what do people really eat what to live to be hundred. And um, and do it with scientific responsibility. So it's not just some invented in some lab or somebody's opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, it's it was we did it with rigor. Uh, Harvard's Walter Willett has endorsed it. Um, Dean Ornish wrote the foreword. Mm-hmm. David Katz from Yale. So it's a very careful distillation of the di- the true diet of longevity. And then. Once you know what the right thing to eat is, then the rest of the book goes on to say, well, how do you set up your life so you'll actually do it for long enough that'll matter? Because as I said, right. there's no short-term fix when it comes to longevity. But the reality is the average American could live about 12 more years if we optimize our lifestyle. I'd argue that's the blue zone lifestyle. Mm-hmm. That's the value proposition. Mm-hmm. But you have to set up your life so you do it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what are some of the core principles for creating that kind of sustainability? I mean, outside of what we already discussed, I mean, is there something different 
that we haven't gotten into yet. Like, well, you know, it's that gap between in, information and action, right? Like yeah. bridging that. I would say number one is uh, curating the right group of friends. And so the Blue Zone diet is about 95% plant-based, 5% mm-hmm. meat. So uh, if your friends sit around and barbecue, um, you're probably going to end up taking a bite of the burger eventually. Right. Most people would. So um, ditch your friends. Yeah, I, I say you don't want... <laughs> You don't want to necessarily. I th- I'd say hey, you want that extra decade. <laughs> That's why I'm hanging out with Rich Roll for crying out loud. No, but I would say you have to know, realize that your friends have a measurable impact. So yeah. t- first, take stock. Who am I hanging out with? Mm-hmm. Um, do I belly up to the bar with them all the time? Do I sit on the, the couch and watch football and eat chips with them, or do I have friends who go take walks or mm-hmm. bike or? love to surf for because what your friends are doing you're going to be doing mm-hmm. so that's that's actually huge friends tend to be long-term adventures um how you set up your house it's a, a simple thing i've done um is i still enjoy meat occasionally very rarely still enjoy ice cream occasionally i'll enjoy chips once in a while if you have me over to your house mm-hmm. and serve dessert i'll eat it yeah but what's, I'll never bring it into my house. What's Kathy got to say about that? Shh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so well, she she suffers. She's see, so she's become my friend, and because uh-huh. of that, I've become way way more vegan than I used to be. Mm-hmm. But I'm still just veganish. I'm a pescatarian, right? Um, and then you kind of curate. You kind of decide who who you're going to like get close to you. And I wouldn't say dump your old friends, but just know if if health is a priority, uh, you can go the sign up for the gym or you can buy the latest paleo fad diet. But I'll guarantee you, you won't be doing it in a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you make a new friend uh, who you really like and who shares your values, that could easily be a lifelong. Uh, adventure and influence you for your whole life. Mm-hmm. So setting up your house the right way, your social life the net, you're the right way. <coughs> Sorry. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't have done the bong before we started. <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to tell them that. <laughs> uh, JK. Um, and then knowing the right thing. Uh, I think when it comes to food, eating plant-based, two things you have to do. Uh, you have to know how to make a few things. Mm-hmm. You have to have the skills. But then you also have to know you like it. I could tell you that broccoli is the secret to longevity. And if you don't like broccoli or you don't know how to make it, you're not going to eat it. So having a few core, having taken the time to learn a few core recipes that you actually like, mm-hmm. then they start to become permanent parts of your repertoire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, ba- they're simple things, but they're super powerful things, you know. Super important. The company you keep, being conscious of your environment, the environmental factors that are influencing your decisions, you know, creating habits around these practices that are going to inform and improve your life. You know, it's huge. So it's exciting, man. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah? You're not excited? You're excited. Come yes. Um, yes. It's cool. I just internalized. So you just, you, you were recently at uh, the the uh, Clinton Foundation Health Summit, matters. right? Yeah. And, uh, and and you sort of occupy, you know, rare air in terms of kind of, you know, the people that are 
that are integral to, to healthcare policy, what's going on with health in America, the future of health, preventative healthcare, et cetera. Like, what are you seeing? Like, what are the trends that are happening? And where do you kind of see things moving in the next couple of years? Like, where should we kind of place our focus? What needs to be looked at more intensely than it's getting looked at? And what is exciting happening right now? Well, the efforts to promote health in the first place rather than just mitigating sickness. Um, I will tell you that um, actually the healthcare spending actually went down a little bit in the mm-hmm. years, in the last few years. So it's not a complete lost cause. We still. What do they attribute that to? Well, I would argue that it's a awareness of how unhealthy soda pops are mm-hmm. and the um, the decreased in, in consumption of them. Um, that there's a um, and we now know that I think soda is the public health equivalent of today's public health equivalent of cigarettes mm-hmm. when it comes to obesity. Um, I think policy starting to line up. I think Michelle Obama has focused. Uh, uh, the attention on on the right target when it comes to when it comes to health. Um, I, I was the biggest thing there. The and and uh, Bill Clinton is um, convenes the most powerful people in America. They do it in Palm Desert um, once a year, and the topic of conversation most of it is not uh, how do I make people sick people less sick it's how do we keep them healthy in the first place Mm -hmm. and um that's the right question that's the right question we're starting to think that's the right answer unfortunately the economics don't line up behind that but um that's uh that's where the great white hope is when it comes to uh reversing obesity and chronic disease in this country Mm -hmm. i love it man thanks for doing the podcast Man, this was the highlight. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. You just set your bar higher, man. I've been looking forward to this a long time, yeah, man. I really appreciate it, man. I'm a, I'm a big fan of everything that you're doing, and uh, and I'm excited to see this book roll out, coming to uh, every media outlet <laughs> soon, right? You're doing, you have quite a media blitz coming up, right? You're doing all kinds of TV shows and stuff. It's going to be cool. Yeah, NBC, Dr. Oz, Parade Magazine. Mm-hmm. They're Very probably cool, all out this week. Yeah, that's right, because we'll, well, we'll be putting this up right around that time. Sweet. Yeah, cool, man. Well, uh, thanks so much, man, and uh, I, hope, uh, I hope you all uh, come back and do this again. Live large. All right, man. Peace. <laughs> thanks, Rich. Blance. I told you this guy was my hero, right? I can only aspire to Dan's level of advocacy and impact. It was such a treat to talk to him, and I can't say enough good things about this guy. I hold him in such high regard. So don't forget to pick up his new book. I'm pretty sure you're going to be seeing a lot of Dan everywhere this week. He's making the morning show rounds. He's going to be on all the talk shows like the Dr. Oz's and all that kind of stuff. So wave to him on the television set and enjoy. Send me your questions for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com to find all the information, the education, the products, the tools, the resources, the inspiration you need to take your health, your wellness, your fitness, your self-actualization to the next level. Go to richroll.com, peruse our nutritional products, 
our education products, and yes, our garments. We got awesome t-shirts there, all made with 100% organic cotton. If you like the podcast, give us a review on iTunes. Come on, you guys. Pick up the free app in the App Store so that you can listen to episodes older than the most recent 50 that you can find on iTunes. Continue to support the show by telling your friends using the Amazon banner ad and sharing it on social media, especially Instagram. I love that. Don't forget to tag me. I'm at Rich Roll, and I'll see you in a couple days. Peace. Plants. Yeah.